Welcome back to another episode of the Max Term Podcast. Kyle Stitch here alongside James Finch. And today we are doing a free agency recap, talking about the lack of trades, restricted free agency with a focus on arbitration. And we're going to start with an interesting topic, kind of one of the top free agents still on the board, Vladimir Tarasenko. Before we get into that, uh, we appreciate you listening and subscribing on any of the major platforms that you might consume your podcasts on. Follow us on Twitter at AFP Analytics at MaxTermPod. Those same handles are also uh, on the new Threads app. We'll see. We'll see where that app goes, but we're going to try to be a little bit more active on that in the coming days, weeks. You can also find our personal Twitters um, on the at AFP Analytics as well as our Thread um, handles as well. Additionally, we are also on YouTube if you like to uh, listen to your podcast through there, Max Term Podcast there. Uh, any ads you might hear associated with this podcast are not necessarily products that James and I are endorsing or companies that we're working with or anything like that. And in this episode, we, we do have some level of connections in the industry. We've heard things from free agency. Uh, we, there's some things that we just can't, unfortunately, reveal to you as uh, listeners as we're trusted with uh, sensitive information and we can't burn those connections. So with that, I want to start with probably the biggest free agent name available, Vladimir Tarasenko. So before I get into kind of the interesting agent switch, let's set our kind of where our market value is for him, kind of set the, set the scene, if you will. Yeah, so with uh, Vladimir Tarasenko, we had him on a three-year deal at about 5.1 AAV. It, it was a 6.07% cap hit percentage. And uh, how we got to those numbers, so some of the comparables that worked into that uh, low end, we were looking at Mike Hoffman um, right around the same uh same type of deal, we're looking at uh, Radim Verbata, slightly higher, a Patrick Hornquist. And uh, yeah, so th that's kind of the type of level where we saw Tarasenko at, that I'll call it a second line scoring winger, maybe third line on a really deep team. But uh, it, it isn't a time where Tarasenko should really be expecting another huge deal with a real high AAV, the uh, star powers starting to wear off a little bit. So we had him projected again, three years, just over five million. We could probably justify getting that closer to five and a half million, but much more than that. We would, we don't really have a comparable that fits that. Maybe Matt Zuccarello as well would start to come into that mix. So we would be looking at Matt Zuccarello and Patrick Hornquist if he were to get in that $5.5 to $6 million range, which is what uh, Larry Brooks had reported on Twitter. Tarasenko had offers on the table in that range with varying lengths that he had turned down. Brooks is the only person to have reported those numbers, so um, they haven't necessarily been confirmed or put out by anyone else, so just, just do with that as you will. So what's interesting about Vladimir Tarasenko is he supposedly had those deals on the table, five and a half to six million, varying lengths. We don't know what that means. Maybe he's looking for just a one-year deal, but he turned all those down, and 
then went and fired his agent. So when a player is working with an agent, the agent's obviously working year-round for that player, trying to help negotiate contracts, kind of set the market value, etc. It's not just, uh, oh, July 1st is here, I they do the work then, then they go away. So his previous agent was working with the Rangers and likely other teams behind the scenes to start to lay the groundwork for some contract. Again, if it's potentially in the five and a half to six million dollar range, his previous agent had had negotiated that level for Tarasenko. So we saw the exact same thing happen last offseason with John Klingberg, where he was turning down deal after deal, supposedly looking for a big, big payday that was never there for him. He also switched agents. So the new agent is going to help Tarasenko land a contract. I'm going to bet it's maybe one year, maybe six million tops, maybe gets a little bit above that. Actually, probably does get a little bit above that because of kind of how the agent-player relationship works. So an agent makes their money by basically taking a percentage of the player's earnings each year. Generally in the NHL, that's 3 to 4% of the total earnings. So Tarasenko's previous agent is going to have claim to 3 to 4%, depending on whatever that agent sets his percentages at, of what he had negotiated for Tarasenko. So let's just say, hypothetically, there was a $6 million deal on the table for Tarasenko with his previous agent. The agent is, regardless, entitled to 3-4% of that. So that's a significant chunk of change for this agent that was just fired. The next agent, his new agents, which are CAA, uh, the agency, they are entitled to take their percentage from this new contract on any dollar above what the previous agent had already set. So let's say they get him $6 million in $1. The previous agent had already laid the groundwork for $6 million. The new agents, CAA, can take their percentage on that $1. And so every additional dollar, they're getting an additional percentage. Where it gets interesting is it's only on the next or kind of the current contract that he's going to sign. Same thing with Klingberg last summer. Tarasenko is likely going to now sign a one-year deal because the agents are going to be pushing for high money so they can get a cut in one year so he can go back into the marketplace. And when he goes back into the marketplace, regardless of what his previous agent may have potentially laid the groundwork for, the new agents are able to take a percentage of every dollar that they are able to sign the next contract for. So let's say the previous agent had a three-year deal on the table. Well, is the minute Tarasenko signs a one-year deal, that three-year deal is basically irrelevant. The agent will get a claim to the one-year deal, but then after that, no, no more. So the new agency, CAA, will be able to take their full cut going forward. So it's going to be interesting how it plays out, but I think that it's it's very likely now that a one-year deal is going to be signed because it frankly benefits both the player 
and the agency at this point because both are going to be able to go back into a fresh marketplace with a higher cap next year and truly take advantage of those earnings. So we let off with Vladimir Tarasenko's kind of situation because we were hoping to provide a little bit of insight to our listeners on kind of the back end, how things, how kind of the sausage is made in the NHL, especially in the agency business. It's a real tight cutthroat business where, where people are always trying to basically take each other's clients to get, get a, the client the most money, but also get their biggest share of the pie that they possibly can. But the other kind of big story, at least from our perspective, is 22 players filed for arbitration. They chose to do that. That also That's in addition to Timo Meyer and Alex DeBrinkett, whose teams filed for arbitration. Of course, Timo Meyer has since signed a long-term deal with the Devils, but the Devils had filed for arbitration to make sure that they were able to secure his rights uh, if they hadn't been able to come to a long-term contract. And why is that significant? Well, now that we have reached, well, past July 5th at 5 p.m., anyone who either was team-filed or player-filed for arbitration can no longer receive an offer sheet. So there are some kind of interesting names on this list that some people thought would be a fun idea to offer sheet. And it certainly would have been fun, but if the players kind of hold out for that, they're giving up a level of their leverage by not playing, by not filing for arbitration and maybe giving up some future earnings by kind of waiting it out because once they pass on filing for arbitration, the team basically has all the power unless an offer sheet rolls around, which just doesn't happen in the NHL. So let's let's talk about some of the big names that did file for our arbitration and no longer eligible for offer sheets. Yeah, so I, I think there's Ross Colton for Colorado. That's interesting with him being a, a new acquisition for them. Um, there's guys like a Troy Terry in Anaheim, uh, Gabe Velarde, who was just acquired by Winnipeg in the Dubois trade, uh, Vince Dunn, Philip. Gustafson, the goalie for Minnesota. A couple names I think are a little more interesting, and part of it is because there was a little bit of intrigue of could one of these guys sign an offer sheet, but even more so because of the team's cap situations. Two goalies, Jeremy Swayman and uh, Ilya Samsonov for the Maple Leafs. Yeah, now that both of those guys have filed for arbitration again, no more offer sheets can be no offer sheet can be made to either of them, which for Toronto, who's currently over the salary cap, yes, there's they have Jake Muzzin, who's probably going to go on long term injured reserve, and they have uh, Matt Murray decision kind of looming. We'll touch on that in another minute or so, and then Jeremy Swayman, same thing. Um, no no more offer sheets possible, but I would expect both those goalies to easily get four, five, maybe even pushing six million as their arbitration award, which is going to put both Toronto and Boston in a pretty difficult situation. Yeah, so there's always the fun option everyone likes to talk about is how can they unload some money onto other teams, usually through a trade. Maybe they have to retain on some guys to get them out of the 
out of the organization, but um, you kind of hinted at this. There is another option here that pops up once these players go to arbitration. Yeah, so I think we'll use Toronto as the example here, and that is the minute an, a player goes to arbitration and kind of an award or a settlement is reached, the team that signs that player has a buyout window open based for 48 hours from the minute the kind of contract is signed. So Toronto is going to have another opportunity at potentially buying out Matt Murray or someone else, and same with Boston, if they can't necessarily find other creative ways to uh, make some more cap space. What I think is really interesting with Toronto, though, is if I was trying, if I was a GM, I would have put them in a really tough spot because if Samsonov had received an offer sheet prior to the arbitration deadline, Toronto doesn't have another player going to arbitration, so they wouldn't have another buyout window. Yeah, so at that point, you then get into how do we unload a contract, and if other teams are smart, you're probably asking Toronto for at least some halfway decent assets to take on a Matt Murray or it's been rumored maybe a TJ Brody uh, who's got a year at 5 million left. Um, so, so yeah, it, there's the fun chaotic situations that we kind of wish would happen because it's, it's fun to watch, but uh, obviously those were kind of skipped over, didn't end up happening. And uh, Toronto was able to have that, extra buyout window as a, a fallback if things don't quite go their way. Yeah, if, if uh, Toronto had been put in a tough situation with Samsonov, they would have seven days to figure that out, or they would lose their better goalie and then be basically stuck rolling with Matt Murray and Jason Wool, which maybe maybe isn't as bad as I'm making it out to be, but... An offer sheet would have put Toronto in a very difficult situation, maybe forcing them to trade a Willie Nylander for either young pieces who might not help them now or for pennies on the dollar. So Toronto getting Samsonov and Boston with Swayman are going to be forced into probably some tough arbitration awards. And I should also note for that buyout window, the player that is bought out has to have a cap hit of at least $4 million. So both Matt Murray and TJ Brody would potentially qualify, but it does preclude some guys with lower cap hits from being bought out. So Toronto, Boston are going to have tough situations because of their cap hit and because they have very good players. Two other teams that might have an interesting kind of arbitration hearing is Colorado with Ross Colton and Winnipeg with Gabe Velarde. Winnipeg in particular, you can argue Gabe Velarde was the centerpiece in that Pierre-Luc Dubois trade. And if you're making a case for why you're valuable, I would be starting with, hey, I was the centerpiece for a very valuable asset. And same with Ross Colton in Colorado. He, Colorado sought him out. They clearly value him, and they gave up a high second-round pick. So both of those players, their agents and the NHL Players Association, are going to bring that up in the arbitration. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, if they both come in, if they go all the way down the arbitration route, coming in a little bit higher than you would expect because 
a neutral arbitrator hears, hey, this guy, this team wanted this guy, they gave up value to get him, so he deserves more of a contract. So some of the, uh, let's hit on some of the other RFAs that filed for arbitration real quick, some other maybe notable names. Yeah, so I, I think one of the next bigger names would be Vince Dunn in Seattle. Uh, coming off really what was a breakout season as their top defenseman. Um, we were thinking he'd get a bit of a long-term deal, and it's still possible, but he he had to file for arbitration here. Some other players uh, sticking in Seattle, Will Borgen, another defenseman who's kind of that really good third pair. Maybe he could become a second pair. Uh, Troy Terry in Anaheim, um, and then we've got Alex Debrinkit in Ottawa. Uh, team filed, so a, a little bit different of a situation there. Yeah, so Debrinkit has to get at least 85% of last year's salary in arbitration if it goes that far. It seems like Debrinkit's time in Ottawa is absolutely numbered. He might be playing out this one year, but I don't know how Pierre Dorian and the Sanders can go into this season knowing he's walking at the end of the year. I mean, Ottawa's close to maybe being a playoff contender, but they're certainly not a cup contender, and they probably can't afford to let a player of that quality walk for absolutely nothing. Seems like Detroit's been connected to him the most. Dallas, Nashville, maybe hanging around a little bit, but it's we've only seen a few trades so far, so maybe he's the domino that everyone's waiting to fall. That could definitely be the case, and I, I think part of the holdup with this Debrinket situation is Ottawa's probably looking for the uh, same type of trade package that they gave up for him initially. And right now, like you said, there's not a whole lot of movement trade-wise, and I think teams are probably just balking at the price and willing to wait. Yeah, Ottawa really probably should have tried to recoup a first-round pick this past draft, the 2023 draft but they didn't seem overly motivated to do that. So they're probably going to be looking to to recoup a first-round pick in the 2024 draft. And any team giving up that pick's acquiring Alex Dabrinkit, you would think that they're a team that's already somewhat on the cusp of contending. So adding a Dabrinkit to your team for an entire year probably is pushing that pick to the middle to later of first round which is a lot later than Ottawa gave up to acquire him. A lot later, and I, I will say, you, you hinted at this, there were, uh, I, I don't even want to say there were reports, it was in an interview with Pierre Dorian where he said they were not very high on this year's draft, which I don't know what kind of information they have in Ottawa, what kind of numbers they're looking at, but this was a draft that was kind of regarded as a much stronger draft. Um, so next year, the draft class quality might not be quite as high. It's a little perplexing that they decided to not make a deal 
at the draft here? Lack of trades has kind of been the theme since the draft ended, really. Yeah, so uh, there have been five trades since the start of free agency, July 1st, and one of them was, I guess, what we would consider an AHL trade, a one-for-one, just a couple minor league guys. The other four trades were kind of underwhelming. I don't want to say insignificant, but it's not anything anyone was too excited about. So uh, there was Joel Edmondson going from Montreal to Washington, uh, 50% retained to lower his AAV to $1.75 million, and that cost Washington a third round pick and a seventh round pick, both in 2024, this next year's draft. Uh, Another trade that happened, Dallas cleared a little cap space, sent Colin Miller to New Jersey for a fifth-round pick. Uh, New Jersey kind of needing that defenseman with two guys walking out in free agency, Damon Severson and Ryan Graves. Um, Then there was a trade between the Florida Panthers and San Jose Sharks. Sharks acquired Anthony Duclair and sent away Stephen Lorenz and a 2025 fifth-round pick. And then the fourth trade uh, that happened here, NHL trade at least, was between Minnesota and the Tampa Bay Lightning. Lightning, in a cap space uh, dump pretty much here, they retained 20% on Patrick Maroon's deal to get his cap hit down to 800K. Uh, They attached a prospect, Kezkovich, apologies if I uh, pronounced that wrong, but a prospect that isn't really expected to become too much of an NHL player, and they ended up receiving a 2024 seventh-round pick. Um, and like I mentioned, that's pretty much a, a cap dump. So really, just those four trades since the draft, or since the start of July 1st even, free agency beginning, and that's pretty underwhelming. No big names. I'm not even sure. I think maybe Edmondson and Duclair were on some top 50 lists of trade targets, but uh, this lack of inactivity is pretty crazy considering uh, we're almost a week away from free agency. Yeah, I mean, I think the theme really is cap dump. Most of those deals really boil down to teams who are looking to clear cap space And I'm not even really sure for whom, because free agency also happened, or at least a lot of the big-name free agents are now off the board. And none of those guys necessarily got massive contracts. There were some the Islanders gave term to lower some cap hits a little bit. Alex Kalorn got a big contract with Anaheim, but outside of that, no, no massive deals were really signed and there's really only a few kind of notable names left as well yeah so if if you're looking for a goalie the ufa market is pretty much dried up there's a few backup options like a martin jones yaroslav halak um alex stalock beyond that it's it's pretty thin and you're gonna have to go to the trade market on defense matt dumba's still out there that could be a fairly intriguing name for some teams and Caleb Jones we 
kind of touched on him in a previous episode. He's not a star or anything, but he's a pretty solid defenseman for a second or third pair. Um, you need a center. You're looking at Oscar Sundquist, um, Paul Statsny, who's serviceable in the bottom six, I guess, but not much to get excited about there. And the wingers is where there might be some bigger names still. There's Tarasenko, who we talked about, uh, Tatar, Pugliarvi, Danton Hyman. There's still some value there. And uh, the other name that it might take a little while to hear is Patrick Kane, who uh, has some reports out there right now. Elliot Friedman, I think, was the main person to mention it. Uh, Patrick Kane could end up waiting until in season to decide where he's going. So that's something that uh, teams looking to spend a little bit of money and make sure that they have an addition to uh, their forward group. Kane's no guarantee because they might have to play quite a few games this upcoming season before that's even decided. That would also make a lot of sense for Kane to wait if some team has an injury. Um, you know, maybe Mark Stone's back flares up again. I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but if if something like that happens again mid-season where, you know, the player is going to be out until the playoffs conveniently, suddenly there's some cap space open for Patrick Kane on a contender, and it could make a lot of sense for him to go there one for a one-year deal, reset his value a little bit, and then maybe go back into the market next offseason when he's hopefully fully healthy. So not many big names left. Let's uh, kind of get into for a little bit some of the moves, our thoughts on how teams did. And I personally want to start in the Atlantic division. I think that coming into the offseason, this was a division that with some smart, savvy moves, you could have had seven out of those eight teams legitimately competing for playoff spots. And I don't think any of the of those seven teams, if someone said, yeah, I think that that's a playoff team, I don't think anyone would, would second guess that. So that's Toronto, Florida, Boston, Buffalo, Tampa Bay, Ottawa, Detroit. Then Montreal is also there lurking. They're the kind of eighth team that I think is still a little bit farther away. But I think the Atlantic Division teams, especially Buffalo, Ottawa, Detroit, had cap space to work with, have young talent. But I think the teams as a whole kind of missed the mark in free agency. Yeah, so I, I guess to kind of start with those teams who whose moves were a little underwhelming, um, Buffalo was interesting because there was a lot of talk about uh, trying to get a top four defenseman, and they might have done that, signing Connor Clifton. I think that remains to be seen. He was a great bottom pair defenseman, good penalty killer for the Bruins. Can he be relied upon in bigger minutes? We'll see. Um, and then Eric Johnson's one that... I think that's fine for a team looking to bring in some leadership. It's a one-year deal. Buffalo had plenty of cap space to work with, like you said. And Honestly, I don't really care about the amount of money. It could have been $5 million for Eric Johnson to get him to Buffalo. For what he's there for, not a big deal. There's 
very little risk to that. Um, as long as he's not viewed as a bigger piece on the defense. But I, I still kind of sit here wondering, are they going to still try and acquire a better defenseman? Because the whole top four goal, I don't think, has been met yet. Yeah, looking at Buffalo's defensive corp, you have a clear top three. Matias Samuelson, Rasmus Dahlin, Owen Power. Those those three are... Or, well, two of them are potential Norris contenders in the future. And then Matias Samuelson's just a really steady kind of presence that can play easily first pair or really good second pair, maybe even stabilize a third. And then they have really, in my opinion, like four right shot defensemen that are best suited for their third pair. Henry Oki Haru. Ilya Labushkin, and then Connor Clifton and Eric Johnson that they just brought in. I would hope that they're trying to move maybe a Yoki Haru out in a package for a better right shot defenseman to play on that second pair. And then I still don't necessarily know what the plan is, though, because there's still too many bodies for to kind of fill out your the your bottom pair at that point. So to me, that's, that's really puzzling. And the Clifton move is most puzzling to me because they gave him the same term that Racco Gudis got with Anaheim and only like 750000 less a year for a far inferior player. Like Racco Gudis would have been a perfect, perfect fit for Buffalo's second pair. He would have only cost a little bit more. Same term. I don't know. That one's the head scratcher to me. Absolutely. And I mean, when you're looking at Buffalo just to throw a couple more defensive names out there. They've also got Riley Stillman and Jacob Bryson, albeit left-handed defensemen, but those are NHL players. Something's got to give in Buffalo. Uh, there's there's just too many defensemen now. Moving from defense, they also have multiple goalies under contract to basically too many to fill out their NHL and AHL team at this point. They, they added two more more AHL goalies in free agency brought back yet another guy that's been with their organization, Michael Hauser as well. And so they have three potential NHL goalies, Devin Levi, Eric Comrie, Uko Pekko Lukanen, two AHL guys plus Michael Hauser, who's even played some NHL games for them and been fine in those minutes. So I don't, I don't see how you can go into the season with that many goalies on your organizational depth chart. And frankly, not even someone that I'd feel comfortable rolling out in tandem with a Levi who seems in line to play 60, 40, 50, 60 games, which just seems absolutely crazy to be your plan as a playoff team. Yeah, I think, uh, a lot of Buffalo fans were expecting some type of goalie move, even though the organization kept coming out and saying, well, we're, we're good with what we have if, if that's what happens. Um, but like you said, it, it seems like they're going to have to rely a bit too much on Levi. And even though they've built themselves a bit of depth in goal, none of it is really at the level needed to improve their NHL goaltending situation. So I want to move to another team that kind of added more of the similar type of players that they already have. Detroit Red Wings. Um, 
they made a big splash signing JT Comfort to a five-year deal, just over $5 million, uh cap hit. And it feels like we were just there last offseason as well. So Detroit signed Andrew Kopp last year. Kind of a pretty good second, third line forward, and that's pretty much what JT Comfort is at this point in his career. Um, seems a little redundant. I think Comfort might have a little bit more of a scoring touch, but at the same time, it just feels like kind of more of the same for Detroit when they really could have used a legitimate goal scorer. And that's, this is nothing against Dylan Larkin, who's a great, great player, but even he's more of almost in that type of mold. He's obviously a lot better of a goal scorer than a confer and a cop, but all of their centers are now very good two-way guys, but none are necessarily elite kind of offensive scorers, distributors, or anything like that, and they don't have a winger necessarily to put the puck in the net. They also went in free agency and added Daniel Sprong, who is not qualified by Seattle. Sprong had a good goal-scoring season last year, but he was playing more like third-line minutes against weaker competition, and it was really his only high-scoring season in his career. So rolling the dice there just seems, I don't know, I don't like that idea, for them at least. Yeah, I think... Sprong is probably an underrated player in the sense that at 5v5 play, he's a lot better than I think most realize. But like you said, he's really just now turning into a third-line player, and there might not be much room to grow beyond that. And for what we're saying, with what Detroit needs, it still feels like they're lacking. I mean, they gave up Kyler Yamamoto. They didn't qualify him, and I think that he's as good, if not better, of a player, and I think his ceiling's probably a little bit higher than Sprong, or at least similar, but they went out and paid Sprong a little bit more than Yamamoto ended up getting, and they kept Clint Costin, who, again, is is a fine player, but he's more of a bottom-six winger role player. Again, Detroit has enough of them, I it seems like to me at least, and then even on defense, yeah, they have Mo Sider, and then I'm still I don't know who else that I would be at least scared matching up against if I'm an opposing team. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they did fine bringing in Justin Hall, um, maybe a good number four, ideally at least. And they they also brought in Shane Gossespierre, who isn't exactly like a shutdown guy; he's more of an offensive. Uh, presence on the blue line. I don't know how much better Detroit really is going to be this year. They brought in some solid names, but they need to score goals, and I'm not sure they've really addressed that yet. Yeah, and they uh, are have basically mutually ter- agreed to terminate the contract of uh, Philip Zadina there, and. So he hasn't scored goals with Detroit, but he's been kind of that offensive play driver that Detroit kind of needs, and maybe giving him more of an opportunity, giving him being a little bit more patient with him, might have been a better idea than going in and paying Comfort what they ended up paying him. 
So Zadina is going to be is out in Detroit and he's going to be on the open market. We're not necessarily going to add him to our free agent projections. We're thinking probably minimum, maybe up to a million for a one-year contract to kind of reset his value. One team that I love the fit with for him is the Boston Bruins. Yeah, the Bruins are really in need of depth on the wing. So they brought in... uh, James Van Riemsdyk in free agency. I don't think he really replaces Taylor Hall anymore at this point in his career. He could be decent on the third line, but um, Boston, at least up front in the forward group, they're a lot thinner than in past years. I don't know where exactly they're planning to go, but it would seem like someone like a Zadina would fit well, considering he'd be pretty cheap and is a younger player with a little bit more of a scoring potential than many who are left out on the market. Yeah, I think Boston did about as well as they could have in unrestricted free agency, given their cap space that was really hurt with performance bonuses, overage, from Bergeron and Krejci from last season. JVR at $1 million, Kevin Shattenkirk at $1 million are nice veteran players that Boston is able to kind of leverage their contender status to bring in and opportunity as well. So speaking of opportunity, Morgan Geeky was not qualified in Seattle and was able to hit the open market, and he quickly signed with the Bruins Right now, he might be in line to be their top center to replace Krejci and Bergeron. I don't know if that's necessarily something I'd recommend doing, but right now I'm not sure there's a better option. Yeah, so I would say with Geeky, like you said, there's a lot of opportunity there in Boston because really it's it's Pavel Zaka, Charlie Coyle. Neither one of them have rightful claim to uh, the first-line center role or the second-line center role. There are two options for sure, but it makes sense for Boston to try and bring in someone else who could also compete there. Morgan Geeky was kind of limited to the bottom six in Seattle. You had guys like Jared McCann, Matthew Beneers, even a Yanni Gord to an extent. If he wasn't on the wing, he could shift to center. Geeky wasn't really going to have that opportunity in Seattle. and we, we saw a lot of guys who didn't get a qualifying offer end up returning to their team anyways, but Geeky was able to end up in a spot where I don't think it's insane to say he's got a chance at at least the second-line center spot, if not the first line. We could see Marshan, Geeky, Pasternak, which does sound kind of insane, I guess, but there's opportunity there. I think it's a good fit for him to really have a shot at a bigger role, and it's the type of addition Boston needs to make. Small cap hit, low risk. They don't have a a whole lot of space to do much more than that. But they're not improving that team enough to make up for the likely loss of Bergeron, Krejci, Taylor Hall. So 
I don't know what I make of Boston for next season. They they still obviously have some very good top-end talent, but their depth is sus- suspect. And if you can kind of limit Pasternak, Marshawn, and DeBrus to an extent, I don't know where their scoring punch is going to come from. So I think they're probably no longer the favorites in the division. I think the teams that had maybe some of the better free agent moves, well, start with Toronto, outside of maybe their first one. I kind of like what they did. And then also the Florida Panthers as well. Yeah, so starting with Toronto, that first move you're talking about is Ryan Reeves. That was a three-year deal, 1.35 AAV, and that's kind of one where we're sitting here saying, okay, why three years? Why are you paying over a million for him? It could be a little bit uh, of what he can provide off the ice um, as a leader, as a good locker room presence. Um, but as far as on ice performance, that deals a little funny to us, honestly. Uh, for a team that's usually tight on cap space to be paying Ryan Reeves $1.35 million, feel like that could be applied elsewhere in a much better way. But some other moves that they made, the ones that kind of make us look at them fondly, is Tyler Bertuzzi. They brought him in for one year at $5.5 million. Uh, they also brought in Max Domi for one year at $3 million, and those are two players who I think ideally would slot in on a second or third line, but uh, it seems like at least one of them might get a chance on a top line with Austin Matthews, and they should be just fine doing so. Yeah, so Toronto made a couple nice additions to their forward group, kind of rounded out their depth, which we were talking about them kind of needing to do. Then the Florida Panthers also is a team that kind of rounded out their depth. Yes, they shipped out Anthony Duclair, but I kind of like some of their, I feel like they continue to move their team forward in a, in a positive manner. Yeah, so with the Florida Panthers, the big move that I really liked seeing from them was Evan Rodriguez, four years, $3 million. That's a little bit lower than what we had him projected at. We were thinking he'd get a three-year deal at about 3.7 um, on the AAV. So uh, good deal for the Panthers. Uh, I would say a very solid second or third line player. If he's on their third line, which with who else they have, uh, it seems like that's where he would end up. Um, it's probably going to be one of the better third line players in the NHL. Um, so that, that's a great move. Oliver Ekman Larson is not who he once was, but at a one-year deal, $2.25 million, that's a perfectly fine uh, move to make and bet on him rebounding, especially in a very offensive system that they have. Um, Nico Mikola, three years, 2.5. That's not bad for a pretty solid third-pair defenseman. Um, Anthony Stolarz bringing in a goalie. He was one of my more favorite backup targets from this UFA class, and they got him uh, one year, 1.1 million. 
a bunch of defensive depth, Mike Riley, Dmitry Kulikov at $1 million one-year deals. Rasmus Asplund's a fun one. Um, more of a defensive forward. We'll see if he cracks the lineup or not. He uh, had a bit of a down year last year, but it, it seems like Florida kind of waited to see what was happening with some of the bigger names and then went bargain shopping. Yeah, the Rodriguez and Asplund moves, I mean, I think they're a little bit sneaky under the radar. Asplund, I mean, it, again, he's no one to maybe, to necessarily get excited about based off of last season, but two years ago in Buffalo, he was really, really good defensively, and I think that that's a big improvement to for Florida's fourth line over potentially over an Eric Stahl there, um, at least from a defensive kind of standpoint, and maybe also helping out their penalty kill. And they had to add some some names on defense to get through the beginning kind of portion of the season because they're going to have some injuries injury issues at the start of the year. Brandon Montour being the big one's probably going to be out for at least the start of the season. But I I really like what Florida did to kind of round out their roster while also being, I would say, judicious with their cap space. Yes, losing Duclair hurts, but I think bringing in Rodriguez gives kind of different look for at least and getting similar quality, I guess I'll, I'll phrase it that way. Duclair's Definitely a better goal scorer, but I think Rodriguez is the better all-around player. And at the same cap hit, playing down the lineup, I think Rodriguez makes a lot of sense for that team. Other teams in the Atlantic Division, Ottawa Sanders just, I mean, they're probably going to be losing to Brink as we already touched on. And they didn't really do much to move the needle forward, kind of maybe if they end up with Tarasenko, that offsets that loss a little bit. Montreal's still kind of in their rebuild. They still have some work to do. Then the last team, Tampa Bay Lightning. Their window might be closing. They're just, they're up against the cap. And yes, they run a Connor Sheary, but that was at the expense of Alex Korn and Ross Colton, basically. Yeah, so I, I don't necessarily want that to be downplaying Connor Sheary's value. I, I think he's probably a pretty solid third liner at this point. And in that lineup, if he falls into a role on the wing on one of the top lines, he could probably provide some goal scoring. But like you said, overall, what happened with Tampa losing Kalorn and Ann Colton, bringing in Sheary is more just trying to put a Band-Aid over a pretty big wound I think their window as far as they're struggling cap wise and some of their key players are getting just a little bit older their window probably is getting a bit smaller and actually factor in just how strong of a division they're in and it's it's getting a lot tougher for Tampa yeah I think Tampa's really saving grace right now is I don't know if the if some of the teams behind them as we talked about Buffalo Detroit Ottawa I think Florida's done enough to pass them, but there's still a little bit more wiggle room. Boston also could fall behind. I think I think Tampa's saving grace maybe going into this season right now, or at least where we stand now, is the teams around them didn't improve enough where Tampa's kind of top-end talent is still should still be enough to get them into the playoffs. I'm not they're not a team that I would expect to necessarily make 
much noise or anything like that. So with Tampa losing Kalorn, that's Anaheim's gain. And Kalorn got a big, big contract. Definitely more than we had projected him for. But given kind of the pedigree he brings to the team he's bringing it to, I'm not surprised that he was able to cash in. The Kalorn and Anaheim match... There might be a little bit there in that AAV that's like, hey, we're not going to win too much right now, but you're a really solid player and we really want you in Anaheim. Kind of speaking to what you mentioned as far as what he actually brings with that uh, really a Stanley Cup pedigree. Um, I don't think, even though he got more than we projected right on the length, but about a million more per season. For what Anaheim's looking to do, I, I think that's perfectly fine, that deal. You also have to keep in mind Anaheim's located in California, the highest tax rate in the U.S., so that's that's a big hit. 13.3% of his earnings are going to, are going to be paid to California tax, so in order to sign there over some other options, definitely have to uh, consider Consider that as well. That might have that also probably contributed to Anaheim paying a level of a premium to uh, acquire corn. So Anaheim made kind of some splashes in free agency. Another team that I guess made a splash that maybe wasn't as expected was the Nashville Predators bringing in Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah. So the deal they ended up giving O'Reilly um, was a I want to say four year, four and a half million and. Um, that, that honestly is not too bad in our eyes. I think it's important here to also note, just like I noted with Kalorn going to Anaheim in the high-tax state of California, O'Reilly coming into Nashville at his contract, four years, four and a half million per, is receiving a favorable tax situation. Nashville is one of the best in the league, so... We had projected closer to five and a half million for O'Reilly, but the the premium or kind of the discount that Nashville is able to provide tax wise kind of help helps bridge that gap and explain why he took a little less than we projected. But pro but market value wise is probably going to put similar amount in his pocket as if he had signed in like a St. Louis even. Yeah, and I think uh, it, it makes sense value-wise. What is interesting is from the team's perspective, they traded Ryan Johansson to Colorado. They retained $4 million for the next two years. They bought out Matt Duchesne. Is Ryan O'Reilly coming in and providing something significantly more than either of those players? Maybe he won a cup. That's big. But the way I'm looking at this is it is not just from the team's perspective, the four and a half million I'm going to be paying Ryan O'Reilly. It's also, let's say, the four million I had to retain on Ryan Johansson to open up the Ryan O'Reilly spot. Yeah, and to me, O'Reilly and Johansson are similar enough players that it's it, it is an interesting move. It's kind of it's kind of a different flair, kind of a different flavor, changing your culture, changing your just your team makeup a little bit. But yeah, I mean, they're probably going to be playing the exact same role, and they're very similar, kind of two-way type 
forwards. O'Reilly's probably a little bit better defensively. But, yeah, I I think it's interesting how uh, Trotz is remaking kind of this, this roster. But see if he has anything else in the pipeline. Again, they, they've been linked to Debrinka. They've also been linked a little bit to Eric Carlson. I think that that kind of smoke has... It's kind of cooled down a little bit, but Nashville seems, I guess I'm not surprised by anything they've done, but I also am surprised by what they've done. Yeah, so they haven't necessarily gotten better. We've talked in previous episodes about with where they are as a team, they either need to go all in or decide to rebuild. Um, some of their top players are getting a little older. Roman Yossi, Ryan McDonough, specifically two of their top defensemen. Moving out Johansson and Duchesne, bringing in O'Reilly, are they any closer to contending and winning a cup? I don't think so, and you could maybe even argue that they're further away. Yeah, I, I see them basically as the exact same team with the exact same kind of ages, just different players, different names. So another team kind of similar to Nashville, but I think has a different window that looking to win now, but also kind of retooling, retweaking their roster. The Pittsburgh Penguins lose Jason Zucker to Arizona, which I think was a little bit of a head-scratcher considering the contract that he ended up signing and the quality of player he is. But then they bring in Lars Eller, Nola Chari, Matt Nieto up front after trading for Riley Smith. And then on the back end, they replace Brian Dumoulin with Ryan Graves. And in goal, they now have three NHL goalies, bringing back Tristan Jari on a long-term contract, and also dipping into the free agent pool with Alex Nadalkovich, as well as Magnus Helberg, who could be an interesting kind of depth option for them. And they still have Casey DeSmith there. So they spent some money in free agency, but it wasn't necessarily on kind of top six players. It was more to round out their depth. And I think it's it's most interesting in context of Jason Zucker going to Arizona. I think what really happened with Pittsburgh is that Riley Smith trade is probably what they view as replacing Zucker. That being said, in a way we could look at this as Zucker, who ended up signing $5.3 million with Arizona. That amount, at least, from Pittsburgh's perspective, is kind of them bringing in Lars Eller, Nola Chari, and Alex Nadelkovich. So in a way, they maybe added to their depth overall as a team. And I think the Riley Smith trade maybe helps stomach that a little bit more, kind of trading out Zucker for that depth that they added through free agency. Well, Mikel Granlin's just the gift that keeps on giving, though, because if they if Ron Hextall hadn't went out and made an in, insane move to acquire him, they could have made all those moves and brought back Jason Zucker, and Pittsburgh would suddenly have a really scary team. And even looking at another $5 million player they have, Ricard Raquel, that's 
fine, but I'd rather have Zucker for that contract as well. I, I definitely agree with that. And then Ryan Graves on the back end replacing Brian Dumlin. I like that move. And I in reports are Pittsburgh might not be done on tweaking their back end. They might be looking at Eric Carlson, which depending on what they give up and the contract that they can fit him in, I would love that for Pittsburgh. And I think that that would be, that would be the home run move that they probably need this offseason. Yeah, I would like to think if a deal were to happen for Carlson that it would kind of include someone like a Gramland headed back to San Jose um, to really help fit that Carlson contract. But yeah, I think Latang had a little bit of a down year last year, and bringing in Carlson, who had an amazing year, obviously, won the Norris, that could be a way of kind of re-energizing the defense a bit, at least offensively. So we keep harping on that Jason Zucker deal. We were going to move a little bit more through the Metro division, but I, I think I think it's important to also point out Arizona had a sneaky, nice free agency. So yeah, we don't think that they're the most relevant team by any means, but they finished last season kind of strongly. Act, and I like some of the moves that they were able to make, take advantage of their cap space this offseason. Yeah, so they're not a team we expect to really win. If, if we're running the team, we're, we're kind of looking for some additions that could be really solid players, good for the locker room, all of that, but also guys who could maybe turn into a valuable trade asset. And I honestly think that's what Jason Zucker is for them. On, on a one-year deal at 5.3, you get close to the deadline, you might be able to let's say, retain 50%, and all of a sudden you have a pretty valuable, I'll say, good second-line winger for a fairly cheap cap hit. And I, I think it's really valuable for Arizona to be making deals like this. Another one is Alex Kerfoot. Uh, they got him on a two-year deal at $3.5 million. We were thinking it, he'd be getting about four years $3.5 million. That's another player who, at least initially, kind of lengthens the lineup a bit, makes them a little bit deeper down the middle. But he could be a very attractive trade candidate come the deadline for a team that needs another center or maybe they're deep at center but someone's hurt and really need to bring someone in. Kerfoot's a great third-line center. Um, so these are kind of good moves that aren't long-term no risk really in the future, but good bets on possibly being able to turn into some type of future value. And they also bring in Nick Bugstad, um, who they actually traded at the deadline to Edmonton. Uh, he wanted to come back. And another player that wanted to come back was Troy Stetcher. They had him back to the blue line. Um, and both of those guys came in right around where we expected. We had Bugstad at 2.3, signed for 2.1. Uh, Stetcher, 1.4, he signed for 1.1. These are great deals, low risk, and could provide a chance for some future value if they're able to trade these guys. So back to our regularly, regularly scheduled uh, Metro Division discussion. So Pittsburgh had a really nice, or at least interesting free agency. I kind of like what they've done. 
outside of losing Jason Zucker there. The Rangers were able to bargain shop bringing in Blake Wheeler, which was absolutely needed considering they have some holes on their wing. But otherwise, they really don't didn't have the cap space to do much else because they're going to have to sign Keandre Miller. It's going to be interesting if they're able to get a long-term contract done because they don't have the cap space to give more now to bring down future years. The New York Islanders... Lou did what he always does, just bring, brought back his entire team, basically. There's some rumors that they're in on Debrinkit. I don't really know how they make the money work, but it seems like every time I question Lou for how he's going to make the money work, he makes the money work. But I I like the Pierre Engolf deal a lot for the Islanders. Yes, yeah, seven years is a long term, but $3 million AV is great. Scott Mayfield gets a really nice contract. I mean, that's that's something that AAV-wise was around what we would have thought he would have gotten on a shorter-term deal in the open market. So him getting that on a seven-year deal is, is really nice work for the player, at least in this situation. Yeah, so uh, Mayfield, I think, did really well to get that seven years as he's going into his age 31 season. For him to be kind of that in-between second, third pairing defensive defenseman to get a long contract like that, that could very well run him through to the end of his career, that, that's a great move for the player. Pierre Engvall's one that I think is interesting because a lot of people are looking at that seven years and saying, why would you go that long? That's crazy. The first point I, I want to make with Engvall is he's one of the better defensive forwards as far as a third line kind of shut down. You can play this guy against other teams' top lines. So considering that, and then the fact that he's going into what we would consider his age 27 season, seven years, isn't. it's not like he's going to be 40 playing for you. Yeah, and again, keep in mind next year the cap's going up three, four, or five million dollars. So Ingall's deal in a year is is basically being eaten up by the cap increase, and the cap's going to continue to rise at that rate or maybe even more in future years. So having a really good third line player locked in for three million is actually really nice work by the Islanders in that situation. It is interesting that Lou uh, came out and announced all his you know, signings this year. There was speculation. Oh, is it because he, he wants to make a trade? I don't necessarily buy that because he's made trades in other off-seasons and waited to kind of show his, show his cards at the very end with all his signings. I don't know. It, it's interesting that, uh, that they were all announced right, right when they were done, including both their goalies. Ilya Sorokin got a long-term extension and then um, Simeon Varlamov came back, which is not a surprise whatsoever. So the Islanders did really, really nice kind of retaining their pieces. Whether it's going to be enough, I don't necessarily think they have enough talent to really continue to be contenders with the way the game's moving. But I think they did fine bring back their pieces. They Value-wise was great. It's just whether that's enough quality. But I think the the team in the Metro Division that had the best free agency 
and is really one of the Stanley Cup contenders is the Carolina Hurricanes. Brought back their goalies, then made some other additions to their lineup. Yeah, so those goalies, just to touch on them quick, we had Freddie Anderson, two years, $4 million, and he signed for two years, $3.4 million. And then on Tiberanta, we had it two years, 3.2, and he signed a one-year deal at 1.5. So as far as we're concerned, getting those two goalies back at those rates, they did a great job. Um, and a couple other guys that returned, Jordan Stahl's back, four years, 2.9. That's a pretty solid deal. And uh, Jesper Foss, one of the better defensive wingers on a third line, Signed right about where we were thinking uh, at two two years, 2.4. So they did a great job bringing their own guys back, but then they also uh, went into the free agent market. Two guys specifically, Dmitry Orlov and Michael Bunting. So Orlov, we were thinking five years, about 6.25 million, and he ended up kind of doing a, we'll call it a Vladislav Gavrikov, and went for two years and ended up getting an even higher cap hit than expected at a 7.75. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily a bad deal for him because he'll be able to hit the market again soon with a much higher cap. It's not too bad for the team either because they're not really locking themselves into a real long-term deal with a defenseman who's going to be going into his age 32 season. Um, so I think that's working out for both sides pretty well. And then Michael Bunting's kind of a fun one, I think, because Carolina did really well, in my opinion. We had him five years, $5.25 million, and he ends up signing three years, four and a half. And he can probably slide in on one of the top lines and provide fairly solid all-around play and hopefully a little bit of goal scoring that. They were kind of lacking towards the end of the year. Yeah, I think that's the big thing with Bunting and Orlov, really, is is they're going to help the offensive side of of the ice for Carolina. Bunting will score some goals, and he should be a perfect fit on kind of the way that Hurricanes team wants to play, kind of in-your-face, uh, heavy forecheck, always kind of attacking, coming at you. Again, Carolina, just like Pittsburgh's the other kind of team that seems to have the most smoke around them for Eric Carlson. Adding Orlov, potentially adding Carlson, that makes me wonder what they're kind of up to on their blue line because they have a lot of decent players there, but they have a tough decision to make on a Brett Pesci and traditionally they've operated as a team that does not go into a season with a guy on an expiring contract. Yeah, so there's been a lot of rumors around uh, Brett Pesci and kind of at the point where it's believed the extension he's looking for is a little bit too rich for Carolina's liking. At the same time, he hasn't been moved yet. We've gone through the draft, the beginning of free agency. I'm thinking they are kind of hitting that wall of the trade market where they're not quite seeing the value out there that they would like to be for someone who is a pretty solid top-four right-shot defenseman. So he's kind of the obvious one. There's also Brady Shea, who I believe is avail- or not available, but eligible for an extension. Um, 
I'd wonder about him as well. There hasn't been quite as much around rumor-wise that uh, includes his name, but those are the two guys to kind of watch, especially if uh, Carlson moves on the horizon. I mean, looking at kind of their depth chart on the blue line, if especially if Carlson were to come in, they would have Orlov Slavin on the left, kind of left shot, Burns Carlson on the right shot, and Shea's the left shot, Pesci's the right shot. Those, both of those guys really could be moved out, either maybe in a Carlson deal, in separate deals, because adding Orlov, adding Carlson, those guys are arguably your third pair, which, I mean, that's absolutely elite depth, and I don't want to match up against that, but they also just uh, re, they basically kept Dylan Coughlin, and they still have Jalen Chatfield as well, who who had a really nice season for them at the back end. And on the goalie situation, uh, be sure to listen to our discussion on the Metro Division that we did before free agency starts, because we laid out an interesting scenario with Peter Kachikov there, where they might have some sneaky cap issues if they're trying to send him up and down, um, especially as they start to make if they try to add a Carlson, that's something to maybe keep an eye on. But Carolina probably had the absolute best free agency, in my opinion. I I think I agree with you. They uh, made some great moves as far as bringing some of their own back and bringing in two, I think, very impactful players in Orlov and Bunting. Uh, The last thing I want to mention really quick with Carolina, because we mentioned how their goal scoring was kind of the issue towards the end of the year. Andrei Svechnikov tore his ACL. He should be back, and assuming he's back to himself, that's a pretty big-time goal scorer that's going to be back in the lineup for Carolina. So those goal-scoring woes shouldn't be quite as bad when you consider him and Bunting essentially being added to what we were seeing as the Carolina Hurricanes in these last playoffs. I think that Carlson question kind of out there, if they wanted to bring him in, especially at a reduced cap hit, they're going to have to probably give up something. And one of, like, a Martin Neckis or Seth Jarvis could be one of those players. But conversely, if they moved out of Pesci or Shea, they could get someone, someone back as well. So Carolina could be retooling, could be done. I mean, I like their lineup as is, but I... Also, wouldn't I don't think I would hate if they did some more retooling, especially if it involved an Eric Carlson on their back end. So, I mean, there are other signings that we didn't necessarily touch on. You can find an analysis of all of them on the at AFP Analytics Twitter. We, we tried to do kind of a, a one-tweet thoughts, value, kind of how they fit in, maybe a follow-up depending on the player. So that's at the at AFP Analytics, where the contract projections are also posted. So there's still lots of contracts to be signed. Most of them are restricted free agents. But still, as we mentioned, some unrestricted free agents are out there as well. Matt Dumba being probably the big name on defense. Thomas Tatar's out there. But the trade market's really where I think eyes will be turning now that a lot of big names are done in free agency, so it's going to be interesting to see if if some dominoes start to fall there. We still have still have to bring it out there. We still have the Calgary Flames. We still have the Winnipeg Jets. Still have Eric Carlson. 
and what domino effect that could have on like a Carolina Hurricanes as well. So the trade market, again, four trades really since the draft. Trade market's got to heat up a little bit if teams are looking to improve. But uh, with that, we're going to continue to monitor the trade market, and maybe that's what we'll talk about on our next podcast. But we'd like to thank you for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time.